0: Well, good morning, everyone. It's so good to be here. I'm just so honored to be back in this place and preaching in this space. And um, to receive this wonderful honor, I am just humbled by it. And I'm just so thankful for the privilege to be here. I want to ask forgiveness uh, for my voice right at the front end. Last weekend, over the uh, weekend, we did 10 services. And my voice has not recovered from that. So contrary to popular opinion, it's not puberty, it's preaching. So <laughs> I want to say that on the front end. But I'm just really honored um, to be here in this space. In fact, I was thinking the last time I actually preached from here, it was in 1996. And it was in a doctoral preaching class with Dr. Ellsworth Callis. And the, the atmosphere in here is very different from that class on that day, if you know what I mean, to be in a preaching class. And uh, a few weeks ago, I quoted Dr. Callas at our church in South Florida, and when I did so, they put a big picture of him on the screen behind me. And I told my wife later on, I said, I found it both comforting and intimidating at the same time that he was behind me. So I'm just honored uh, to be here. And before I go on, I just need to say just a couple other words, just a personal privilege. I just want to honor my wife uh, in this place as someone who is not uh, a complementarian who is an egalitarian. If you know me, you know that our church would only have about eight people in attendance were it not for my wife. She is the wisest person, uh, me- um, a person in ministry uh, as a female I know. And I just want her to stand. And would you just honor her one more time? And it's of course good to be here with Brandon and with Haley and with Trevor and with Eric. Uh, one other person, too, I want to speak to is here this morning, and I'm honored to have him. He has been across the years for me. Uh, my relationship began with him as a pastor or as a, as, as a professor, but over the years, he became a pastor, a confidant, a counselor, a dissertation mentor, and in almost every other capacity, he's a tremendous person who speaks into my life, and I'm talking about Dr. Burl Dinkins. And Burl, would you stand... And would you honor this great man of God? <clears throat> uh, some of you students are here. You're going to want to get to know him after this service and get on his calendar and practice every single thing he preaches, okay? So um, I want to just take a moment, and I want us to read this text again. And uh, I always say, community, of folk, feel free to grab a piece of paper and take some notes. We're going to do some study on this text today. This is... Uh, Mark's words to us concerning a moment that happened in Jesus' life. Mark chapter 6, we're going to look at it one more time. It says, Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles that he is performing? I mean, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't these his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And then Jesus said to them this. He said, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. And he could not do many miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Let's pray together, can we? Lord, would you come into this moment in this space? And would you use it in, as an, in important ways in our lives? A God, all of us are here, and we come seeking a fresh word from you. So that this in, in this space, in this moment, it might not just be another chapel, but by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would say some things to us about where our lives stand right now in alignment with your truth and with your word and what you're calling us toward in the future that we might not only just be receivers of your word but by your grace oh God we would be doers this we pray in the name of Jesus and everyone said amen Uh, earlier this year I was doing some reading uh, in the gospels to prepare for the Lenten season and for the Easter season. Uh, when you serve in the same place for 21 years, it's a bit of a challenge each year to be fresh with what you're teaching your congregation. So I've made it a practice across the years, as Lent and Easter uh, come on board, to begin uh, to spend time into the go- in the Gospels and seeing where God would lead me in terms of fresh bet- bread for those who are going to be coming across this, uh, you know, that season. And I ran across this story. And even though I've read it more times than I can remember, it jumped off the page to me in some challenging, and I want to say honestly, some disturbing ways. And I think there's a message here for, uh, for us in this, and I don't want us to miss it. Uh, I was uh, reading a while back uh, about a branch of social sciences that is studying something referred to and spoken of as crowd psychology. And crowd psychology is a kind of study uh, where those who are working on it observe the human relationship to the behavior or convictions of a crowd of people over against the individual people who comprise it. And within this study, there's a type of behavior that is referred to as de-individuation, okay? De-individuation. And it describes a kind of loss of self-awareness that can take place within a crowd or a group of people leading a person to either feign adherence to a set of core convictions they they don't have or to disassociate from core convictions and behaviors that they do have. And the study went on to suggest that all of us have a proclivity All of us have a tendency, if you will, to do this. I was thinking about this, and um, I thought about something that happened in American sports history a while ago. I'd like to see how many of you are baseball fans in the room. A good number of us, okay? And so I want to apologize now for what I'm going to say about the Chicago Cubs, but there probably aren't any Chicago Cubs fans here. That was supposed to be funny. And um, there was a story that happened a few years ago. It ha- happened actually on October 14th, 2003. And uh, it is now referred to as the Bartman incident. Anybody know what I'm talking about? A few of us in the room do. I wanna show you a picture. So this is a picture of that night. So this is, uh, this is game six uh, of the National League pennant race in 2003 that took place against the Marlins and the Cubs. The Cubs are playing uh, the Marlins. They're in Wrigley Field, which I wanna tell everybody is often referred to as the friendly confines. That's important to the story. And so Luis Castillo, who plays second base for the Marlins, has just jacked a line drive that's sailing out into left field. And Moises Alou, who's the left fielder for the Cubs, is chasing the ball. And as in Wrigley Field, the ball catches the wind, or I should say the wind catches the ball, and drifts it toward the out of bounds, and as Moises Alou is going up to catch the ball, a lifetime Cub fan by the name of Steve Bartman reaches out to catch the ball, and when he does, he ruins Moises Alou's ability to catch it. Now, if Moises Alou catches the ball, that would have been the second out in the eighth inning which would have left the Cubs four outs from winning the National League pennant, something they hadn't done since 1945. But Bartman interferes with it. The ball, as you could see it there, bounces off Bartman's hands, Moises loom misses the catch, and what could have been the, 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 uh, the second out in the eighth inning becomes what the Cubs now refer to as the linchpin moment when they went on to lose the pennant and eventually watch the Marlins win the World Series against the New York Yankees. And what happened in these next minutes is the friendly confines of Wrigley Field turn into this dark, evil, foreboding space, so much so that Steve Bartman has to be carried out under police security with a disguise on, and to this day, has never appeared publicly since this incident. It's kind of a troubling incident. It's a perfect example of what I'm referring to, which is referred to as de individuation. In fact, in 2011, ESPN did a documentary on this event called Catching Hell. I want to show you a picture of it. And when they did the study of this, they went back and actually showed footage to people who were at the game who participated in this really weird moment, and when the people who were there saw the footage of themselves at the game, they could not believe it was them. So what I wanna draw your attention to in this moment, it's a perfect example of de-individuation. And when I I read this story in the scriptures, in Mark chapter six, I'm led to believe a very similar thing is happening. And and the overfamiliarity of the people in the, in the crowd, in the community, in the hometown of Jesus had become so familiar with him, they missed the opportunities right in front of them to see Jesus in his power and in his glory. And when I notice this a little more closely, what I notice in this story is some some things that take place. In fact, a deeper look of the text shows three areas I think we ought to watch out for that that can happen to all of us. Because I think when you come to a seminary and when you prepare to embark into Christian ministry, if we're not careful, it is our over-familiarity with Jesus that can actually take us off course of his intended purpose for our lives and I want to point out the three areas that I think we ought to be most careful around the first one actually takes place in Mark chapter 6 verse 2 and I want you to notice there what happens so Jesus this is at the beginning of the story the story's unfolding it says Jesus leaves his hometown he's accompanied by his disciples but notice what happens in verse 2 says when the sabbath came He began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him, it says, were amazed. And uh, going on, it says this, where did this man get these things? They asked, what is this wisdom that has been given him? And if you're taking notes, here's what I want you to write down. I just want you to write down the word wisdom. And you'll notice there in this text this is the challenge, this is the question right here. They're asking, what is this wisdom? And a simple reading shows us that their overfamiliarity didn't give them the necessary openness to hear and to see Jesus and to understand the deeper truths that he was living and teaching right in front of them. The word that Mark uses here is the word ekpleso. And it means this, it means they were incredulous, So when it says they were amazed, they were amazed, but not in a good way. They were amazed in a negative way. And I think we should take note of this in terms of what the scriptures are wanting to communicate. I think, when I think about seminary, I think this can be a place that if we're not careful, that this can happen to us. And all of us, I love what uh, my associate says, Pastor Trevor, talks about uh, uh, somebody speaking into his life. And this is what he said about seminary said seminary is the place where you're going to dig a well that others are going to drink from for the rest of your life. So we want to be careful how we're doing it. I want to tell you the first time I became really connected with us, it happened actually in Royal Auditorium. It was the fall of 1985. And it was the first class I was attending as a seminary student my freshman year. And I was all excited, I showed up at the class early, I sat uh, in Royal Auditorium up in the front of the, the class, just off to the right, and right on cue as if it were rehearsed at one o'clock, venerable professor walks in, puts his books down on the podium, and he looks out at the crowd and kind of surveys us, You know, I'm kind of sitting there wanting to make sure I'm making a good first impression. And this is what the seminary professor asked. He said, I'd like to see a show of hands of every single one of you who are here, who, who believe you have accepted God's call to full-time Christian service uh, with your life if you'd raise your hands. And so I raised my hand, and I thought, well, this must be, they must do this in every class. This is sort of an installation moment. So, you know, I raised my hand, and in fact, if, if, if you've accepted that call, maybe you would, we'd all do it right now. Let's just all raise your hand. You've accepted God's call, you know. And he, and he just looked over the crowd. Keep your hands up. And then he said this, I want you to know if your hand is up, you have increased the likelihood that you will go to hell when you die by 50%. And I can remember doing this. And I thought, you know, what, what seminary did I come to? I mean, what, what is happening here? And then this is what he said to me. He said, when, uh, to those in the class, he said, when you've accepted God's, God's call into ministry, you have accepted the call to touch sacred things with your life. And he said, if you touch sacred things a lot and you're not careful, you're gonna grow calloused hands. And if you grow calloused hands, something is gonna dull and die within your soul. I find it interesting that Mark draws out of the text this very idea when he's talking about wisdom. And seminary is a place where you can build You have to build your heart and you have to build your muscle memory. You have to make a calculated decision about where you are going to draw your wisdom from. Here's what I would tell you. Choose wisely the place where you do that. Because in in, in many ways, not only will your ministry depend upon it, but your own spiritual journey is going to depend upon it. So this is a really important moment. And it's interesting to me when I think about this de-individuation that sort of uh, happens in the crowd, this sort of place that happens, I I see it around wisdom.
1: But I want you to notice,
0: too, I think there's some other things that the text yield that we want to focus on. It also, I believe, has to do a little bit with our circumstances. And so if you're taking notes, I would just encourage you to write down the word circumstances. And this is where I think this happens. It happens in the latter part of verse 2. So uh, verse two begins, it says, where does this man get these things? What is this wisdom that's been given him? But then the very next line says this, what are these remarkable miracles he's performing? What are these remarkable miracles that he's performing? And what I want you to notice again, they're not drawn to the miracles. You notice in the text, they're repelled by the miracles. They're incredulous that he is performing miracles. And this is what I think when I notice that, line in that text I think that God's miracles speak directly to our circumstances and the level to which we're willing to believe God can or will break into our daily lives and our expectation that he would do so and so this is an important moment to think about that our, dis- our disciplines are the things that will allow us to build trust in God's character so we can build faith where we don't yet understand his ways. I wanna say that again, because I think it's important. Our disciplines will allow us to build trust into God's character so that we can build faith into our lives where we don't yet understand his ways. Now if you look at this story, you'll notice the only other time the word miracle is used It's used a little later in verses five and six. And in fact, when I read this verse, I often think really it's one of the saddest verses in all of the New Testament. Verses five and six says this, he could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And notice this, it says, he was amazed at their lack of faith. I don't know about you, but I think we should take notice every single time the Lord of creation says he's amazed. We ought to take notice of that, either for good or for bad. Anytime Jesus is amazed, we should rise up and take notice of that. And the word, the translation of that word right there is the word thalmazo, which literally translates this, he marveled at their lack of faith. I think it would take something, to get Jesus to the place where he would marvel at somebody's lack of faith. And when I look at that verse of scripture, it just, to me, it's one of the scariest verses in scripture. A few months back, uh, I was talking to someone in our church that they had reached out and said, hey, would you have time to have a cup of coffee? And as one of the things pastors do, we drink coffee and we meet with people. And I said, absolutely, love to love to, to meet with you. And as I was meeting with this person, they were, they were at a moment where they were in a faith struggle. And they were in a moment where they, were, they weren't sure that they believed any longer the reality of the scriptures. They believed that Jesus you know, was who, who he claims to be. And they were just in this moment of a crisis of faith. But as, as they continued to talk, I began to notice that their circumstances, watch what I'm gonna tell you here, had, had, had begun to outpace their discipline around knowing who Jesus is. And I told him, I said, I really don't think you're having a crisis of faith. He said, what would make you say that? I said, because the way you're describing your circumstances, it's just clear to me, your circumstances have outpaced your awareness of who Jesus is. I said, in this moment, quite honestly, you're living off the residue of your remembered religion and your inherited faith. And I said, in, in essence, really what I think, you have adolescent faith, but you're facing some adult circumstances and they're in a different space. And you, it's up to you to kind of right size that equation. And really this is what I kind of think Jesus is speaking to in this moment and this story is speaking to. And I think what Mark is trying to communicate to us is that we've got to step up so oftentimes in this way. One of the, I think this is one of the saddest moments in scripture. And I want you to notice this. For years I've read this story and I thought, well, gosh, it just meant that Jesus and all that he was praying for people about, miracles were not happening. But I don't actually think that's what Mark is saying. Notice what Mark is actually saying. Just read the text very clearly. People weren't showing up asking for miracles. He could do so few miracles because so many people came and asked him for a miracle. It wasn't that he wasn't willing, it was they didn't come. They didn't show up, they didn't ask. You see, it's really an important moment for us to keep our faith fresh. And if we're not careful in a space like seminary, if we're not careful when we're out in ministry, a sense of crowd psychology can take over. A sense of deindividuation can take place. And as a result of it, we begin to align with things we no longer believe or we begin to dis- disassociate from things we have long since held. It's a challenge and it's a concern. And I notice that in one other area I want to just give to you real quickly. Not only does this happen, I think, with respect to wisdom, and not only does this happen with respect to circumstances, I notice and believe that it also happens with respect to Jesus' lordship. And this is also a part of the story. You'll notice in Mark chapter six, everyone, verses three and four, right after it says this, what are these remarkable miracles that he's performing? Notice what it says. I mean, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? Isn't this the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with this? And as a result of this, here's Jesus, and they take offense at him. And so right in front of him, this is the God of all creation, this is the Lord of glory, right in front of him, they miss it. I don't know if that challenges you. It challenges me. And one of the things I notice in this text, kind of interesting about this, it's sad and startling, but it's not impossible for us to fall into the same trap. When I think about this, what I want to say is Jesus has to be the the North Star of what you and I are aiming at, and you and I must always orient toward Him all the time. I thought about this more personally um, recently. Many of you know uh, Billy Graham uh, went to heaven and took on his uh, reward, and uh, Billy Graham has been somewhat of a long distance mentor to me. Lived uh, in uh, such a great ministry with no uh, impropriety, you know, nothing in question had this faithfulness, but uh, in reading Billy Graham's uh, autobiography several years ago, he speaks of a moment when people uh, that he had once trusted and held closely to him began to challenge his teaching and his preaching about who Jesus actually is, and it it created a moment, if you will, of a crisis of faith even for Billy Graham, and Billy Graham tells this story in a very moving way, and he says um, one evening when it had reached sort of its zenith and it was at its height and he was really at this moment where he was gonna have to decide that Jesus is just who he claims to be in the scriptures or to move into into this other gospel. He said, uh, Billy said, I was out for a walk one night. It was this deep moment and he said, I took my Bible and I just sat it on a rock out in the woods in North Carolina and he said, I stepped back from the Bible and I just looked at it for a long moment And he said, I began to pray to the Lord, and I said, Jesus, I don't know everything there is to know about you. And there are things in your word that I don't understand. And he said, there are things breaking in my life even that I I can't clearly and most appropriately orient your truth around them. I'm confused sometimes. But he said, in this moment, I'm no longer going to doubt your lordship. I'm no longer gonna doubt that you're for me and you're not against me. And he said, I settle once and for all who you are as Lord of my life and Lord of all creation. And I will preach from that moment and from that space until the day I die. Now, it's interesting to look on this side of history because after Billy Graham had that moment out in that clearing uh, in North Carolina, and he stepped back from it, you can almost trace his ministry taking off from that spot forward. He settled the issue. And so here's what I just want to tell you quite honestly. All of your life, all of your ministry is gonna orient around these three things. It's gonna orient around always where is the place you're drawing upon wisdom? Where do you get your wisdom from? Secondly, how are you orienting what you come to understand about God's character in these places in your life where your circumstances are working themselves out? And then lastly, and probably most importantly, how are you orienting your life around the centrality of the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Because when the day is gonna come when you, like me, leave this precious place And embark on the ministry that your precious professors are leading you toward and preparing you for. And these are the questions you're gonna run into. So dig a deep well, settle the questions here, because people are gonna drink from it for the rest of your life. Let's pray together. God, I just wanna thank you for this space. I I wanna I wanna ask in this moment. That, Lord, you would give us the self-awareness in this space, in this season of training, in this season of preparation, not to just fall in alignment with the crowd, to feign an adherence to things you've, we've not yet come to believe, but to do the study, to open our lives up to the wisdom of your truth and to those who are ahead of us in their wisdom who are most willing to pour into our lives. And that, God, you would use this as a space to prepare us for ministry, but not just that. Prepare us, Holy Spirit, for a lifetime of faithfulness and commitment to your truth and to your word. These are the prayers, and we offer them in the strong and mighty name of Jesus. Everyone said, amen.